Isaiah 55, verses 1, 2, 3. As you find it, uh, please stand. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and, de and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Amen. Please turn to page three in your bulletin where you'll find our Nicene Creed. Page three in your bulletin. Let us recite our Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnated by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. Please pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather again again together in the name of your Son. Lord, we ask your blessings upon our time of worship. May we know your presence is with us, Lord, by your Spirit. May we know that um, in our hearts and our minds, Lord, that when we gather, Lord, it is pleasing in your sight, that you love to see your people together. Help us, Lord, to live in unity. Help us, Lord, to live in peace uh, with one another, to encourage one another, to support one another, um, to love one another, Lord, as you have loved us. We ask, Lord, for your blessings upon this time. We pray for um, Pastor Jones as he delivers the message of your word, and we ask that you would give him strength, give him boldness, um, give him faithfulness, Lord, as he preaches. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please open to page four in your hymnal, where we'll sing our, our first hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy.
Amen. Our responsive reading can be found on page 6 in your bulletin. Page 6 in your bulletin. Priesthood of the Believer. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Since we have a great high priest, he has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Tend the flock of God that is your charge, not by constraint, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not as domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock altogether. And when the chief shepherd is manifested, you will obtain the unfading glory, crown of glory. Our second hymn can be found on page five, Standing on the Promises.
Someone says he has faith, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe 
and shudder. Do you want to be shown, uh, or do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that per, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. As we prepare to go in prayer, remember on the prayer list there's mention of Sister Kettles and she is requesting prayer as she's traveling to Atlanta and she plans to be back but she is asking the church to, to lift her in prayer. Also remember all of our graduates, we have the Anderson boys and I know Corvin Dixon and others. When I say Anderson, I should say Anderson men, young men, both Kyle and KJ who both graduated one high school, one uh, college, and we want to commend all of our graduates. I know this must be a difficult and strange, strange time for you, and many of the ceremonies and celebrations that are associated with graduation uh, is missed, but you'll recognize in years to come that the most important thing is the accomplishment. However, that does not mean that those who pray for you and are concerned about you do not share in this significant mile stone in your life, but we want to commend to all, uh, all of our graduates at every level. Uh, also, we want to offer congratulations. Most of you remember Erica and Schmidt Bellis, who relocated recently to the Virginia area. Well, they just gave birth to their first child, so uh, Christian, he was born, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday, so congratulations to Erica and uh, and. Schmidt Bellis as they are celebrating new life even in the midst of these difficult times. So let's now go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you for this wonderful privilege of prayer. We thank you for the privilege of fellowship. And as we have experienced difficult and trying times, we treasure this privilege of fellowship even more perhaps than we have in the past. The ability to gather with brothers and sisters of like faith. Those not only of like faith, but those whom we are united together at a local level. We thank you for our bond of fellowship and the bond of peace that you have granted us in Christ. And we pray, Father, that as we gather this morning, we know that we are but we, we are but a remnant of this body. And we pray pray for the whole body. We pray for those who are sick. We pray for those who are hospitalized. We pray, Father, for those who 
are at home. Those for their own reasons are not able or do not feel comfortable as of yet to gather together. But we are one and we lift them before you and we thank you for them. Thank you for their gifts and thank you for the opportunities to continue to reach out to our brothers and sisters that we don't see. Thank you for unique opportunities of service and ministry in our time of trial. We lift before you not just the sick and the shut-in and not just those who are absent from amongst us, but we pray for the church body as a whole. We pray for the body in all of its places and all of its forms. We know that there are some parts of the country, some parts of the world, where there is more, there is more active gathering and there are more immediate concerns that are oppressing upon them. And so we lift our brothers and sisters in the uttermost parts of the world who call upon the name of Jesus. We pray for those who are suffering for their faith and those who are persecuted for their faith. We lift before you missionaries and teachers. We pray for preachers and pastors. We pray for officers and leaders within our congregations that you would equip us for the moment that you have called us to. We pray, Father, for those who are in compromising and compromised situations. But we know that in all things and through all things that your grace is sufficient for us. As we come together, we pray not only for the, the, the church universal, but we pray for the world, that your people would be a light in this, in, in this crooked and perverse generation. Strengthen us that we would be able to speak to the issues at hand, that we would understand the, the, the delicate balance between being citizens of heaven and then also citizens of a transient kingdom. You know, we know that you have united us with brothers and sisters by the, the bond of the blood of your Son in the heavenly eternal kingdom. But we are bound by common concerns and human decency in the common kingdom. Strengthen us to walk in wisdom in both, that we would be sources of grace to those that we are in fellowship with, and that we would be hands of mercy and ears of concern for those that we share this common kingdom with. We ask your blessings upon all of those who rule and govern because we know that all authority ultimately comes from you. And everyone that you have given charge, you will, make a, you, you will hold accountable. So we thank you, Father, for your tender mercies. We thank you for this sacred moment. We rejoice with our brothers and sisters who have reason to rejoice. We pray for those who are cast down. We lift those, those up who have been overwhelmed by the circumstances and things in the world. But most of all, Father, we thank you for those things that we share in common in Christ. Strengthen us that we would strengthen others. Father, as we come into this worship, we know that we have sinned. And we do pray that by your Spirit and through your Word, you would allow us to see our sins as we ought to see them. We pray that through the conviction of your law that we would be conscious of any, any word, any thought, any deed that we have been comfortable with that is contrary to your word and your will. 
let us see it and when we see it we pray Father that you would give us a holy hatred for all of that for which you have poured your wrath out on your son and then as we see these things that have taken up residence in our own hearts and our own thoughts and have emanated from our own bodies we pray that you would grant us a heart of repentance that we would consciously turn from that which is displeasing to you and consciously turn to that which you have called us to. And Father, we pray that even as we as we as we are given a spirit of repentance, we pray that you would give us the relief of knowing that all of our sins, from the least to the greatest, have been purged by the blood of Christ. Let us hear anew, even as we cry forth out of our own guilt. Let us hear the sweet and soothing voice of our Savior telling us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We do thank you for the knowledge of grace in Him. And we pray that as this grace is renewed, it would spur your people on to seek your glory in all things. Thank you, Father, for all of your grace towards us. And we know that we live in difficult and perilous times, but times that have been sent forth from your hand. So grant us the strength to see your hand of providence, even in the moments in which we currently exist. Prepare us now for the word that has been prepared for us. Give us ears to hear in a heart to treasure your truth as it's unpacked. And we pray, Father, that the end result is not that we would just feel good, but that we would be strengthened so that when we leave this place, we would have a better grasp of your grace in Christ. Thank you again for this moment. Thank you for your tender mercies. Thank you for your covenant faithfulness. Thank you for the fellowship of your Holy Spirit and your people. And we ask all of these things in the sweet and saving name of our Savior. Amen.
Again, our scripture is taken from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what is what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe in God or believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and he was and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called a friend of God you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone and in the same way also uh, in the same way was not also was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way for as the holy as the body apart from the spirit is dead so also faith apart from works is dead may God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word now it goes without saying that this text constitutes not only the most controversial portion of the book of James itself but also the content of these verses and how they are interpreted represents a dividing or a fault line between any theology that claims a salvation that is the result of human works or faith and works or a a theology that says that human salvation is a gift of divine grace that is passively received by faith. Now some have suggested that James' words here when he emphasizes that we are not saved by faith alone. Some have argued that James in that posture is at odds with the teachings of Paul. Because Paul, particularly in places like Galatians and Romans, is emphatic in making the case, even as he does in Ephesians, that we are saved by grace and not by works, lest any man should boast. And in Romans chapter 4, he makes it absolutely clear that it's not the one who runs or the 
one who works that is justified, but rather it is the one who believes. In Galatians, he makes it clear that there is no justification for humans through the keeping of the law. So the issue is, is James at, at odds with Paul when he, when he makes the position or takes the position that he does that we are justified by faith that is not alone. Now it's my contention as well as it has been throughout the history of the Protestant church to contend that there is no conflict between Paul and James. But rather it is a matter of what is what each one is emphasizing. Paul, especially in his writings both in Romans and in Galatians, is emphasizing what is it that gives us a right standing before God both now and for all eternity. And his point in those passages is the only thing that gives us a right standing, which justification is, a right legal standing before God. The only thing that gives us a right legal standing before God is God's grace that we embrace by faith. And God's grace is the gift of His Son, and God imputes the righteousness of His Son to us, as Paul articulates in Romans 5, even as He imputes to Him our guilt. And that is what gives us a right standing before God. But the point that James is making is really has to do with, with church and world. In other words, we can make a claim that we are justified before God, but what justifies our claim of justification before God as it relates to dealing with the world and more particularly in the context of the church? And for James, he says, no, you can say what you want, all you want, but your works will prove what you profess to be. And so he is dealing with it from a whole different issue. Now what we'll ultimately be doing is using verse 14 as our home base to attempt to make the case that James is not a threat to the Protestant doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Christ alone. Now before we begin to look at the passage before us, I want to use uh, the basic formula, and most have ascribed it to Calvin, the threefold definition of faith or the three elements of genuine saving faith that has come down and to be, to be held by many Protestants, and most give Calvin credit for this. And John Calvin says that, that faith, and I'm not going to use the Latin terms, I'll use the English terms, he says that faith consists of three things. First off, knowledge. There has to be knowledge that is presented. Information. You can substitute knowledge with information. Secondly, there is agreement or assent. The knowledge or the information is presented and one must agree with it. That Both of those are, are elements of faith. There is knowledge that is presented and then there is agreement with that knowledge and then the third element is trust. 
So there is knowledge, there is agreement, and then there's trust. Knowledge that is presented, and you can believe or not believe, or be in agreement or disagreement with that knowledge. But to be in agreement with the knowledge is to, is to act in faith. And then the third thing is trust. Now it's my contention that in James, this difficult passage in James, in James he is making a case for all three elements of faith in order for it to, for a person to make a claim for genuine saving faith. So in other words, James is, is, is speaking or writing in a way that would be consistent with our Protestant forefathers in saying that genuine saving faith consists in all three of these elements. So in verse with 14, verse 14 as our base, let's delve into this difficulty that I think is which is easily misunderstood and look at what James is actually saying. So verse 14 is going to be our base and remember what we're saying is that what James is saying is that if you don't have all three elements of saving faith, then there's reason to question the legitimacy or the genuineness of that faith claim. So let's look in verse 14. And in verse 14, there are two, the, the two questions that are raised here is the central issue. And these two questions rest on a presupposition that Paul would be in full agreement with. In fact, I'm going to look at the two questions and, and juxtapose it with the statement from Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10. So the questions that are raised in chapter, uh, in verse 14, first off, James says, what good is it that someone says they have faith and does not have works? That's, that's the first question. What good is it if a person says they have faith and they have not works? The second question is this. Can that faith that is void of works save them? Now here's my contention. The raising of these two questions presupposes something that is mentioned by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. So let's look at Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10. We're very familiar with verse 8. Because verse 8 in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 Paul says, For by grace you have been saved. And this is not your own doing. Or by, by grace, I'm, I'm sorry, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. The own, the, when he says not your own doing, but it is the gift of God, he is referring to faith. So God has saved us by his grace, and then God has given us the gift of faith to receive that grace. The way we've described it or illustrated it in the past is to say like a person wants to borrow a 
cup of sugar, but they don't have the cup. So consider grace to be the sugar and faith to be the cup. What God does is He gives us both the substance of grace and the instrument by which we can receive it, which is faith. So Paul says, by, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And here's the key part, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, for which God has prepared before beforehand that we should walk in them. So therefore for James to question a person's faith because there is no works that result from it, the, question, the, the context in which he raises that challenge is a legitimate one and it does not overthrow what Paul has taught about salvation by grace. You see, James, what, uh, for, for James, the works that he alludes to throughout this portion or throughout this passage, when he keeps referring to works, is the same thing that, that Paul refers to as walk. So what James says, when, when James says works, Paul is saying the works that James is referring to is your walk. And so therefore, they're not saying something opposite. James is, or Paul says that's the purpose, by the way, the purpose for the grace that we have received. And the reason, and the proof of that, of that, that we have received that grace is seen in our walk. So the purpose, the purpose of saving grace is so that we would be the workmanship of Christ created for good works because outside of Christ we're not capable of good works. So we have been saved by grace so that we would do the will of God which James refers to as works and Paul refers to as our walk. And our walk in grace is the purpose for which we have been saved and it's to some degree the proof that we have genuine saving faith. It is proof of our being, of our position in Christ. So that's, that's where we begin. Paul or James raises the question, those two questions, uh, can a person, uh, a person who says that they have faith, you know, can they claim to have faith and no works? And then he says, so can that, if that is the case, is that, is that faith that is void of a walk, is it really saving? Well, that brings us to the second thing here. What James is questioning in this passage is those whose claim of faith seems to consist of nothing more than the first two elements of the definition or the three elements of faith. It seems to consist in a grasp of information 
and even in agreement with that information. This is why he throws in in verse 19. Because he says in verse 19 where he uses the example of demons. He says, you believe that God is one. Here's information. The information is that there is unity within the Godhead. That there's only one God. And you believe that. That's knowledge that is presented. And you are in agreement with that knowledge. So there are the first two elements of saving faith. The implication, of course, is that the knowledge that we are in agreement with ought to produce within us a particular manner or walk. So notice what he does in verse 19. He makes this case that a grasp of and assent to propositional truth is not enough to save. He's not saying he doesn't disagree that God is not one. In other words, let me, let me put it this way. Faith as a noun. And I probably will be in, a disagree, in disagreement with the way they use it in the dictionary because they define faith solely as a noun. But faith as a noun is a body of truth that is to be believed. But faith is also a verb. But let's begin with faith as a noun. Faith as a noun is a body of truth that is to be believed. And upholding and proclaiming that truth is part of the responsibility, in fact, is part of the prophetic function of the church in the world. To hold up a particular body of truth. That's why Paul in 1 Timothy 3.15 refers to the church as the pillar and the ground of the truth. So that is the, the, the body of truth that is, that is proclaimed by the church is part of our prophetic function to speak the truth about God. So the doctrine of God being one is, is proclaimed by the church. As a matter of fact, the truth that we confess and the truth that we proclaim is what Luke refers to in Acts chapter 2 as the doctrines of the apostles. And so here's the, the, the beginning place of those who claim to be Christians. That they hold to the faith as articulated by the apostles, which is summarized as the apostles' doctrine. This body of truth or this, this, this noun aspect of faith is what Jude is alluding to when he tells, when he, when he admonishes us to contend for the faith that was once delivered to all of the saints. And this is a reminder, brothers and sisters, that this body of truth that we have been entrusted with is the first and it is the most fundamental test of orthodoxy. And by that what I mean, that body of truth determines whether or not a person should be received into fellowship in a Christian church. Without looking at anything that they've done. Without looking at a transformed life. Here's what gives us the right to receive 
you into the faith or to reject you as in, in terms of fellowship. Do you believe that God is? Do you believe that God is one? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is God? Do you believe that the Son is God? Do you believe that? And listen, you might turn your life around a 180 degree turn. You may stop all of the stuff that made you a reckless person, but if you reject that truth, we do not receive you in the fellowship. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that He lived for your righteousness and died for your sins? Do you believe that He bodily rose from the grave? Now you can give your body to be burned by science and or to, to be examined by science. You may give all of your goods to the poor, but if you reject that, you are not a part of the church. That's what James is beginning with. And so here's, but here's the other side of that. While it is necessary for you to embrace these things, the apostles' doctrine, to be a part of the local fellowship, it is necessary if you reject these things or even if you, if you say that you believe and at some point in your walk you say, I just don't believe Jesus rose from the grave and you stepped outside of that faith so faith as a noun engages us at a cognitive level it engages us at a cognitive level because at the level of a noun the mind is presented with information that it acknowledges to be true but here's the, here's the thing while one cannot claim to be a Christian by rejecting that information receiving it and agreeing with it that it is true is not in and of itself indicative of saving faith see in other words yes you must believe it in order to be claimed to claim to be a Christian but just because you believe it doesn't mean that you actually have genuine saving faith and that's the, that's the reason James uses the demons as an example I'll say oh I believe that God is one and James says you know and, and by the way let me say this I, I try to point this out to people that apologetics a lot of people are getting into apologetics apologetics simply means a defense of what we believe and so we should be able, as, as we read in our responsive reading, to be able, as Peter says, to give an answer to anyone that asks for the hope that is within us. But understand this, even if you win the argument, doesn't mean you've won the soul. And that's why James uses the example of the demons. He says the demons are not tritheistic. The demons are not polytheistic. The demons believe that there is only one God and not only do they believe it, they shudder at it. 
So to say that you have sound doctrine, that's good. And to say that you are in, in, in possession of this information, that's good. And that's two parts, two thirds of what it means to have saving faith. In other words, again, one can claim saving faith because you are in agreement with a certain set of facts. But the third element of saving faith that James is addressing here is when faith transitions from the noun category to the verb. And that's the third thing that we want to look at. So the first thing we begin with the questions. And the questions is, can a person say they have faith and not have works? And then secondly, that, that uh, the second question in verse 14 is, can that faith indeed save them? And the logic of James in raising that question is not at odds with the writings of the Apostle Paul. It presupposes that what Paul says, that those who have been saved by grace have been created as the workmanship of God in Christ for good works. So there is no disagreement with the two. James is beginning with, he challenges with the confusion that people have. Because it is a point of confusion that some people think that because I believe this, that that's enough. And that's, that's a, sometimes it's, it's sort of just a stretched argument against those who are, are, are so careful about doctrine. You care more about doctrine than anything else. And you know what? Sometimes that's just a caricature that people throw out there. But I pray that it's never true because if we really believe these things at the level of the mind, James' third point is knowledge, cognitive knowledge that is genuinely saving converts that knowledge of, of, of faith as a noun, it converts it into a verb. And so it's this third element is where faith becomes a verb, and that is in trusting. Trusting is more than just, oh, I just believe and rest upon it. No, trusting. And so James, in addressing, uh, as in, in addressing the issue here, the issue of trust here, the trust aspect of faith, which is at the level it becomes active, his point is that this, 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 this trust of, of uh, this trust that is part of faith is a matter of acting on the information that we have acknowledged to be true. The acting on the information that we have acknowledged to be true. This trust for our purposes can be divided along two lines. So how do we act as a verb on the information that is proclaimed by the church that we have agreed to be true? One of two is in two categories. The first category is we believe or we, we acknowledge this information to be true and we act upon it in trust as it relates to our salvation. So in other words, let me just back up. Here's the information. God tells us that we are a sinner, that we are condemned by His holy law. And He tells us that we are unable to meet the demands of the law and that we are unable to bear its consequences. He, he breaks us down 
down so that as Paul says in Romans 3, every mouth may be stopped and everyone would stand guilty before God. And then he gives us this, but he doesn't just, the information of the gospel is more than we're guilty. The information that's contained in the gospel is that we are pardoned by God's grace in Christ. That his righteousness is credited to us, that his death is our death, and he has risen from the grave, and his resurrection is the guarantee of our victory. And so therefore, trusting in that is to throw ourselves upon the mercy of God and believe that. So we trust unto salvation when we hear and believe what the Bible says about us and our need for salvation. We believe what the Bible says about Christ as our only means of salvation. So that's that's one area that we so the trust element of faith is seen in our salvation. But the trust element of faith also so comes to bear in our circumstances, in our horizontal circumstances once we've been saved. Once we are brought into union with Christ by faith, the trust element of our faith includes conforming our thoughts and our words and our deeds to our new position in Christ. That's, that's where the trust element comes in. In other words, we trust unto salvation in that we believe the information that, that the Bible says about us without Christ. We believe what the Bible tells us about Christ for our, or on our behalf. And we embrace that. And the, re- the way we embrace it is, as Paul says, by confessing, believing in our hearts and confessing with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. No, not by a sinner's prayer. Burn that thing. No, here's how we here's how we embrace what he has done. When Jesus says that I that, that I and the Father are one and that if anyone believes in me, he will not die. We believe that that is us. When the Bible says that all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God, we believe that's us. We believe that when Paul says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to be born under the law for those who were under the law. That he would offer himself as a sacrifice for us. We believe that that is us. So that we are united in his death. And we are united in his resurrection. And right now, brothers and sisters, I know we're seated in various places. But you know where else you are? By faith, you are seated with him in the heavenly places. But here's the trust element of our faith when it comes to our circumstances of life. It means that we are to bring the reality of our union with Christ into bear on all of our dealings. We are to filter our words through. 
we are to filter our knowledge or our, our thoughts through. We are to conform our actions to the grace that has saved us. And so therefore, this conforming of our thoughts and our words and our deeds to our position in Him, this is the walk that Paul is alluding to in Ephesians 2. And this is the work that James is alluding to in his passage. Now here's what's interesting. The example that James gives in verse 15 is not just a human being, but he says, you say that you believe in God. You say that you believe that you have saving faith. Well, here's the way in which you can demonstrate your saving faith. You have a brother or a sister. He doesn't just say neighbor. But you have a brother or sister who is in dire straits. And the only thing that you can say is I'll pray for you. James says that there's a dead spot in your faith. If you have the needs, the, the means to meet that physical need, and the best that you can do is pray, James says there's a dead spot in your faith. Now let's look at the way he illustrates that. And that's the fourth thing, fourth thing. Let's look at the examples that he uses to make this case. That faith as a noun is what you believe. And faith as a verb is walking in light of what you believe. Because the implication is that you being connected to that noun is demonstrating a divine verb. In other words, while your work is proving what you believe, the reason it's proving what you believe is because God is at work in you. Causing you to will and do of His good pleasure. And if God is not in you, causing you to will and do of His good pleasure, then that might explain why you're not concerned about His good pleasure. In which case, yours is either a dead spot in your faith, or it's just a dead faith. Let's look at the two examples that he gives. The examples that he uses to make his case that genuine faith prompts action in response to what we understand to be true. And in response to what we embrace and believe. The first example is Abraham. That's in verses 21 through 23. Now, i, I got to say this. Notice where he begins in the use of Abraham as an example. His discussion with Abraham begins with Abraham offering up his son, Isaac. He says, there's the work. There's the proof. But let's back up. 
because she grounds Abraham's work in verse 23 where the scripture says Abraham believed God and it was credited uh, and it was counted to him as righteousness the reason I think that's important is because Abraham doesn't offer up his son until what 20 uh, chapter 21 22 of Genesis but it's in, it's in Genesis 15 where Abraham believed the promises of God and it was counted to him as righteousness there's a, lo a lot of stuff and a long journey between 15 and 22 there's a lot of haggling, there's a lot of snickering, there's a lot of failure, there's a lot of flaw in Abraham. Now what Abraham does is he believes. And because he believes the promises of God, he does leave his father's house. But the point that, that, that James is calling us to is that Abraham is willing to offer up his son. Hold in mind, Abraham had two sons. And one of the reasons he had two sons is because he had a hard time believing what God said even though he trusted him for the salvation of his soul. Sarah convinced him that, well, you know, I'm old and, and, and you're older. And maybe this is what God meant. And so Abraham had to learn the hard way that God meant exactly what he said. And Hebrews is helpful here because it says that Abraham offered up his son believing in the resurrection. So what is the what is what is it that he believed that prompted him to offer up his son? He believed cognitively that God has the power over life and death. And he believed cognitively that since God promised offspring through this son, that he must mean he's going to bring him back from the dead. So therefore, he worked. Look at the other example. And this one I, I want to spend a little or read actually where it comes from because he mentions uh, Rahab. Rahab the prostitute, he says. Um, you know, it's funny how we do those things because she's in the Lord. <laughs> and, and, and so Rahab is mentioned and it says that, that in verse 25, she, she received the spies and that's called her work. But what, what is it that prompts her work? Look at it in Joshua chapter 2 and we'll look at verses 8 through 11. So what is it that calls her? Because the action takes place before the motive is given. The action is she, she sees the spies and she receives them, but in verses 8 through 11, we get the motive. In chapter 2 of Joshua, beginning in verse 8, it says, before the men lay down, she, being Rahab, came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all 
all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard and how, or how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before, before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, information, our, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above all and on the earth and beneath. Why did she open up and receive these spies? Because she believed, she heard the story of what Yahweh did in opening up the Red Sea. And she believed that the God who opened the Red Sea and delivered them from those foreign kings was the Lord of heaven and earth. She believed. And she acted on that belief. In other words, brothers and sisters, the point that's being made here is that whether we are talking about Abraham or whether we are talking about Rahab, they are presented with, presented with information that they cognitively embrace as being true. And whether it's over a span of time or whether it's instantaneously, their actions are conformed to the knowledge that they have. You know what Rahab did in order to hide the spies? She lied. But she trusted the God whose story she heard. She's not saved because she opened the, uh, she hid the spies. She hid the spies because she believed in God. The point that James is making here is that wherever there is genuine saving faith, there are actions that conform to what we believe. Let's put it on, let's put it on a scale. We understand that our actions, as in the case of Abraham, will be unsteady at times and it will be wishy-washy, but we will still act in light of what we believe. And even as we grow in our grasp of what we believe, sometimes we're just going to act in unbelief. Believers situationally can act in unbelief. Like my mother used to say, sometimes we just act like, we, we don't believe fat meat is greasy. And God has to show us. And here's the point that I think James is making. James seems to be making the case or the point that for one to claim saving faith on the basis of agreement with doctrinal truth that allows them to see their brothers and their sisters bodily neglected and thinking that just talking about the Trinity is enough to deal with the hurt that your brothers and sisters are dealing with, James says maybe that's dead faith. 
because faith causes us to see ourselves in a different position with God and it causes us to act in light of that truth that we know about being in God. You don't have to keep it at those who come amongst you, your brothers and sisters who are poor and impoverished and you have the means to relieve their situation because there are more things than the lack of money that our brothers and sisters can stand in need of. And so what James is saying is that living genuine faith allows us to partner with the heart of brothers and sisters who are connected to us with whatever substance we have without compromising our faith. So no, it's not about standing back, well, we're orthodox and, and that's... No, no, here's what James says. I'm not talking about your doctrine of the Trinity here. I'm not talking about your doctrine of, of final things. I'm talking about your doctrine of anthropology. Let it be drenched in the gospel that you hold to rather than the culture that you are a part of secondarily or a political party or some social group. Don't, don't be afraid of and don't be overwhelmed by what others say. Here's what we're looking at. Brothers and sisters, if we see any human being as less than an image bearer of Almighty God, I question the legitimacy of your faith. If you see anyone as being sub, who have been created in the likeness of Almighty God, whether they are Muslim, whether they are whatever they are, if you see that as making them less than, I question the legitimacy of your faith. And if you see brothers and sisters as being defined by their outward circumstances rather than through your union with Christ and being seated with Him. And if you think it's okay when you see your brothers and sisters hurting you say, well, I pray for him. James says, maybe your faith is dead. We can argue all we want. The proof that we trust is seen in the actions that we take or that we fail to take because of the God that we say we serve. Can faith that is without a walk that corresponds to say what that, that corresponds to what we say we believe cannot save us if our faith is in a Jewish carpenter 
where respectable folk wouldn't go. If our faith is in He who dined with tax collectors and sinners, if our faith is in He who spent time with lepers and known adulterers, let a woman with questionable reputation wash his feet. If we somehow think that faith in him disconnects us from the suffering that is around us and all we have to do is just pray. James is suggesting that maybe there's a dead spot in your faith. Because just as the body without the spirit is dead, so is faith without walk. Because walk is the work. And the work is the reason we have been given the gift of faith to connect us to the gift of grace. So if our faith allows us to continue to see others as we used to see them, allows us to see others and, and ourselves in, a, in an exalted way and others in a subjected way. And maybe, just maybe, our faith is dead. There's no inconsistency between James and Paul. Brothers and sisters, let me say this, that what James is addressing here is part of the responsibility of the gathered church. It is the responsibility of the ecclesiastical body to call hogwash, not on the community, not on the culture. James is not questioning anything in the culture. He's questioning those who are in the pews. The responsibility of the Christian church is to call hogwash on anyone who claims to have saving faith and no compassion towards their brothers and sisters. And by com compassion, it includes a commitment to whatever degree that we have to the circumstances and the needs of our brothers and sisters. It's the church's responsibility. And that's why James, he's, he writes to the church and he tells them, yeah, I know what your doctrine says. I, I know how sound your confession of faith is. But I'm telling you, if that's all you do is believe that and you think that's just leading you on your knees and not on your feet, then go back and read again. You 
See, the same Abraham that believed that God would raise him from the dead didn't even have enough confidence that that God, that same God, would spare his wife when he went into Egypt. And so he said, oh, that's my sister, that's not my, my wife. And somehow God grew him up so that he acted in faith. I pray, brothers and sisters, that we get the noun part of faith right. That we know truth. And we embrace truth. And we believe that truth. But I pray that we get the verb part right. That we would act on that truth. And we're willing to step outside of the boundaries that others have set for us. So that we can demonstrate that we believe what God said. That we are His and so is everyone else who calls upon the name of Jesus. Notice what faith doesn't cause us to do. It doesn't call to ask why your brother's in need. It just meets them in the need. Faith without works is an oxymoron. The way the reformers called it, they said, Faith, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. We are saved by grace through faith, and that's the only thing that gives us a right standing before God, but a right standing before God checks and challenges my affections, my thoughts, and my deeds. And that, together with what I believe, is what makes for living, vital, and vibrant faith. Let's pray. God and our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thanking you again for your faithfulness and speaking your word to us in the moments in which we exist. We thank you for the gift of saving faith, a faith that allows us to see us in our misery and a faith that allows us to see your mercy in Christ. But we pray, Father, that you would strengthen us by your Spirit so that same faith would cause us to see our position and our place in this world as being conduits of your mercy and your, and your grace to our brothers and sisters. Let us not be, let us not be deceived by the world. Let us share physically and whatever way that we have the ability to share with our brothers and sisters whatever their need may be. It is for their good and it is for your glory. Thank you for a living Savior and a living faith in that Savior. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.